Well, can we all bow together, please, and we will make a start. Um, it's good to see you here, and we pray the Lord will be with us this morning once again, and we'll look to Him now for help. Well, God, our Father, we draw near to Thee once more. We thank Thee for Thy day, for this one day in seven set apart for the worship of our God. And Lord, we pray that Thou wilt give us hearts to worship Thee truly and sincerely. We pray that Thou wilt forgive us of our sins, even as we gather together. We confess that we are unworthy and that we carry with us that old sinful nature, that we have that battle with the flesh. And we pray, Lord, that Thou wilt come and grant to us a sanctifying power of the Spirit of God. We thank Thee for the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We rejoice that Thou hast chosen a people, and for that people Christ has died. And in the hearts of those people the Spirit works and draws them to the Savior. And, O Lord, we pray that Thou wilt lead us on with Thee, those who know Thee. May there be growth and development, and may there be a stirring of our hearts as we hear the Word of God, as we consider it together this another Sunday morning. We pray, Lord, that Thou wilt instruct our minds, Thou wilt bring to us truths that will build us up and will give to us help in our own uh, spiritual experiences. We pray, Lord, for a deepening of the work of grace in our souls. Pray, Lord, for a closer walk with God. Come down, we pray. Breathe on us, we pray. Touch our hearts, O Lord, even this very moment, and prepare us for the word that we will consider. Remember those online who join with us. Bless them. And may Thy Spirit move upon all of our hearts. We commend this entire day unto Thee. Remember the worship services. Remember the preaching of the Word of God in this house today. We pray that there will be much done for Thy glory, that there will be a touching of hearts and lives, that the gospel will prevail, that men and women, young people, little ones will be challenged and changed. And Lord, we pray that there will be glory brought through all of this to our blessed Savior's name. And so hear us now and abide with us. We look to Thee. We pray this all for Christ's sake and for His glory. Amen. And amen. We turn back to Zephaniah, and we're going to read the second chapter. And we pray that as we read through these verses, the Lord will bless us and meet with us in a very definite way. So Zephaniah chapter 2 Please open your Bibles there and let us read this chapter. May the Word of God come with freshness unto all of our hearts. Zephaniah chapter 2. Gather yourselves together. Yea, gather together, O nation not desired, before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought His judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon a desolation. They shall drive out Ashdod at the noonday, and Akron shall be rooted up. Woe unto the inhabitants of the sea coast, the nation of the Carathites, the word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, the land of the Philistines, I will even destroy thee, that there shall be no inhabitant. And the sea coast shall be dwellings and cottages for shepherds and foals for flocks. And the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah, they shall feed thereupon. In the houses of Ashkelon shall they lie down in the evening, for the Lord their God shall visit them and turn away their captivity. I have heard the reproach of Moab and the revilings of the children of Ammon, whereby they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their border. Therefore, as I live, saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom, and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah, even the breeding of nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall spoil them, and the remnant of my people 
shall possess them. This shall they have for their pride, because they have, mag- they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be terrible unto them, for He will famish all the gods of the earth, and men shall worship Him, every one from his place, even all the isles of the heathen. Ye Ethiopians also, ye shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and will make Nineveh a desolation and dry like a wilderness. And flocks shall lie down in the midst of her, all the base of the nations, both the cormorant and the bittern shall lodge in the upper lintels of it. Their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be in the thresholds, for he shall uncover the cedar work. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly, that said in her heart, I am, and there is none beside me. How is she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down in? Every one that passeth by her shall hiss and wag his hand. And we know that God will bless the reading of His Word to all of our hearts. Now, at this stage in this series of studies on the Minor Prophets, it is actually appropriate just to remind you and maybe tell you something that we haven't already thought about, and that is that the Minor Prophets, these twelve books, fall into two parts. This division of the Minor Prophets is based on the exile into Babylon that took place under Nebuchadnezzar. And so the first nine books, from Hosea through to Zephaniah, are known as the pre-exilic prophets, simply because they are, what, they were, what they record was written before the Babylonian uh, uh, the exile in Babylon. So there are nine books that are pre-exilic. And then the three prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi are described as the post-exilic uh, prophets because they were written after the exile in Babylon had ended. And so I just want you to get a hold of that because it's very important to see and to understand this detail. Nine books from Hosea through to Zephaniah are pre-exilic and three books are post-exilic. They were written after the exile in Babylon came to an end. And so, in the initial study on Zephaniah, which is actually the last of the pre-exilic books, in the last study on that last week, we found that there were three points about the prophet himself, and that largely took up our time last week in the study. We looked at Zephaniah himself drawing material from this book and from many other scriptures that relate to it. And the three things that we notice about the prophet, I'll just quickly mention, Zephaniah was a man with a royal pedigree. One of his ancestors, as we learn from verse 1 of the book, was a man called Hezekiah. And it is firmly believed by very reliable commentators that that is really the name Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was one of Judah's greatest kings, very godly man. And from him, Zephaniah had descended. So he was a man with a royal pedigree, this man Zephaniah. And we saw how that had a, a bearing upon his ministry and what he said in his day and time. The second thing was Zephaniah was a man in a right place. He was a contemporary with King Josiah. Again, you learn that from verse 1 of this book. And King Josiah was one of the great godly kings of Judah. In fact, he was the very last but a few. Uh, Josiah lived uh, in the days of Jeremiah the prophet, so therefore did Zephaniah. These men were all contemporaries. And Josiah was a man who saw, like Hezekiah, his ancestor as well, he saw great revival. He saw tremendous times of blessing for a period in his day and in his reign. And undoubtedly, Zephaniah would have contributed to that work of revival and reformation through his ministry, through his preaching, through what he brought to the nation of Judah, as we find in this little, this little book. Another important thing we noted in passing, may I say, about the fact that Zephaniah was a man in the right place, that is, 
He was a man living in the days of Josiah when revival was going on. That meant that he was in a very prime position to expose and to rebuke the sin of the royal house to them. And we saw that actually in one of the verses here in chapter 1. The third thing about Zephaniah that we noticed is he was a man with a relevant prophecy. He prophesied of divine judgment, with judgment being the central theme of this book, the book of Zephaniah. And in the main part, or the latter part of last week's study, I developed that line of thought about judgment as we find it in the book of Zephaniah, and we underline several issues that this prophecy has to teach us about the subject of divine judgment. And I can't go into that because I'll not get done what I want to do today. That's just a kind of a recap of the main points that we considered last week, and they were all centered on this man Zephaniah himself. In this book, there are two main features. They emerge very clearly. Number one, through the book of Zephaniah, there is a very severe and a very constant denunciation of sin and the announcement of the coming judgment of God. A message of judgment presupposes, of course, the presence of sin. And Zephaniah's narrative is a great exposure of the sin of Judah and the sin of many other nations. And so when the guiltiness of sin is undeniable, and so it is, as we read what Zephaniah had to say about Judah, what he had to say about the nations surrounding Judah, that meant that there was going to be necessarily the pronouncement of judgment, the judgment that that sin deserves. And so that's precisely what emerges in Zephaniah. That's one great feature of this book. Because of its pronouncement of judgment, it presupposes the sin that brought that judgment, and that sin is outlined, as we will see more of today when we look at this book. The second feature of this book is the prophet's uh, announcement of coming judgment upon Judah and the surrounding nations, giving rise to the employment of language that reveals what the book calls the future day of the Lord. And so when you get those two thoughts in your mind, two features that this book really underlines, I'll again mention them just to make sure that you've, you've picked them up. There is a pronouncement of judgment that, that presupposes sin, and that's clearly set forth in the book of Zephaniah. And then, as that develops, as sin is exposed and judgment is proclaimed, coming upon Judah, coming upon surrounding nations, all of that language takes us to what is called the day of the Lord. Look at chapter 1 and verse number 14. It says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hasteth greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord. The mighty man shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers, and so on. And so we have the day of the Lord very, very prominent in the book of Zephaniah. Now, let's think about that because that really is the theme of this book the day of the Lord. And so these details of Zephaniah's book, the pronouncement of, or the exposure of sin, the pronouncement of judgment, they all lead to this subject of the day of the Lord becoming the main theme of the book of Zephaniah. Now that phrase, the day of the Lord, is what is known in the interpretation of Scripture as an eschatological term. Don't be put off by that language. You need to know that language because the eschatology is the doctrine of last things, things that have to do with the coming of the Lord and judgment and, and so on. All of that comes into the realm of eschatology. This term, the day of the Lord, is very much an eschatological term, a term that has to do with the things of the end. The term is used 
26 times in the Old Testament, five times in the New Testament. The first time it is mentioned in the Old Testament, therefore in Scripture, is Isaiah 2 and verse number 12. You want to turn to that uh, chapter and look at it with me. I'm going to read it now anyway, but Isaiah 2 verse number 12. And maybe you'd like to put a mark on your Bible that will tell you this is the first verse in the Bible where you have the phrase, the day of the Lord. And it sets a pattern for the use of the term right through the rest of Scripture. Remember, 26 times in the Old Testament used, this is the first one, Isaiah 2 verse 12. And it says this, For the day of the Lord shall be upon every one that is proud and lofty, and, and upon every one that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. So that's the first time it is used, and you can see how solemn the term actually is. The day of the Lord shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and so on. The last time, namely in the New Testament, because that's where it's used, I say five times, but the last time the term is used is 2 Peter 3, verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. And there we read these words, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great heat, and so on. And so there's the last time. So it's used 26 times. I've shown you the first and the last references to it. All the rest are in between. And quite a few of them are here in the book of Zephaniah. Now the term, the phrase, the day of the Lord, is employed in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in relation to the end of an epoch or a period of history, both with regard to Israel and pagan nations. It's used in relation to both Israel and pagan nations. Indeed, it's used with regard to the whole world, this phrase, the day of the Lord. But it signifies the end of an era. So get a hold of that. That's why it's called an eschatological term. It signifies the end of an epoch or an era. In addition, in both the Old and New Testament Scriptures, this phrase takes us to the end of all things in terms of the last judgments that will come upon the ungodly of this world. Well, you see, they don't know this. They don't think about this. They don't want to know. The ungodly don't want to be told that there's an end, an end to their sinning, an end to their nonsense, an end to their evil plans, all their agendas. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to be told about Judgment Day, the coming of the Lord, etc. That is something that annoys them, it disturbs them, and therefore they will mock it or they will, they will bring their persecution against those who will raise such issues in their hearing. They don't like this at all. But you see, the term, the day of the Lord, does take us to the very end. Uh, of all things as far as the ungodly of this fallen world are concerned. Now, in some of the Old Testament, Old Testament examples, the phrase is coupled with another term, another eschatological term. Look at Joel chapter 2. We, we've covered Joel, but just go back to Joel chapter 2 and the verse number 31. Joel 2, 31. And it says this, The sun shall be darkened, sorry, the sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. There it is again, the day of the Lord. And we've been told that in association with the day of the Lord, something's going to happen, namely, the sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. Now, that's another eschatological term. The sun, the moon, even the stars are mentioned in other places in relation to the day of the Lord and are spoken of as, as no longer functioning in the way that God made them to function. That's really what's in view in that kind of language. Now, the language signifies the arrival of, of the end of the present state of things with regard to the celestial realm, in other words, the heavenly realm, 
regarding the heavenly lights. The sun, the moon, the stars even, as I say, are also mentioned in this context of things about them coming to an end of their function, as I put it. That's the way to understand it. It doesn't mean that literally the moon will turn into blood, but it simply means that the function of the moon will no longer be needed, and the function of the sun will no longer be needed. If you transpose your mind into the book of Revelation, it says there in Revelation 21 that heaven will not need, has no need of the sun or the moon because the Lamb is the light thereof. And these great lights were set up by God to give to give light and to govern life on this earth. I want you to go now with me to Genesis chapter 1, and let's really get this firmly into our minds about the sun, the moon, the stars. Genesis chapter 1, 14 and 15. And God said, this is the fourth day of creation coming up here, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and it was so. You know, those are wonderful verses for many, many reasons. But I want you to see these two verses because we find here that God made lights, namely the sun, the moon, and the stars. So if you read verse 16, it says, God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And that little, I may just say in passing, that little uh, statement at the end of verse 16 is marvelous. He made the stars also. So you've got the sun and you've got the moon. And then, as it were, as an aside, Moses wrote here, and he made the stars also or as well. And when you think about that, He made the stars also. That's all the rest of the heavenly bodies. And you know, that is unlimited in terms of numbers. And actually, uh, astronomers are telling us now more and more about the extent of the galaxies and and the numbers of of, uh, heavenly bodies And you know, as they come out with all this, and they're actually stating truth, at least on that point, they never stop to think about what they're actually saying. Because the Bible tells us this before they ever discovered it, that there's no limit to the heavenly bodies, and so forth. So, there's a lot we could say about these verses. I don't have time to go down that rabbit trail this morning, but it's a very interesting one just to think about what Genesis 1, 14 to 16 actually says brings before us. But here, here's the function of the sun and the moon. And you notice it, going back to verse 14, they're, they're set on the firmament of the heaven, that's the celestial heaven, the starry heaven, to divide the day from the night. That's the first function. Then let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And then let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And so there are the functions of the sun and the moon. The greater light to light the day, the lesser light to rule, uh, to rule, to give light and to rule the night. And so what you find there is that from the very beginning, when God formed all things and brought them into being, He set these great lights in the heavens or Uh, up there in the celestial realm. And the language that you have in Genesis chapter 1 makes it clear that they were put there, as I put it, to give and to govern light and life on this earth. You see, not only is there no light without the sun, there's no life without the sun. You can't have life unless you have light. And that opens up another whole realm about the days in Genesis 1. Some will tell you that the days in Genesis 1 are hundreds of thousands of years in length, and it's a nonsense. I'm not going to go any farther. You can think about what I have just said. Why is it a nonsense? And work that out for yourself, and I'd say some of you know the answer to it, but I don't want to digress, I say again. But anyway, this is why God made these lights. And therefore, the eschatological language about the sun being darkened 
and the moon turning to blood and, and the stars falling from the heavens. That language is to signify that the final judgment will bring time and opportunity as we know it to a close and will signal the end. Go to Matthew 24, please. Matthew 24, look at verse 29. Why I'm dealing with this here this, in this section about the sun and the moon and the stars, etc., what they are, the language that's used about them in this eschatological sense is to show you how this all ties into the day of the Lord. <clears throat> so Matthew 24, verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And you go on to read what will happen at that moment. In verse 31, he will gather his elect unto himself from the four winds, that is, from the four corners of the earth. But anyway, here are verses that are very relevant in relation to what we're seeing here today at this stage. Here we have, again, a reference to the sun, the moon, the stars failing, uh, no longer shining, and that's really what it means. And you know, it happens when the Lord comes. And it's actually a way of setting forth the brightness of His coming, as Paul puts it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Such will be the glory of the brightness. Such will be the expanse, the unlimited expanse of the light that will radiate from Christ as He comes. There'll be no need for the sun or the moon or the stars. Their function's going to end as the Lord comes in His glory. It is stupendous to think about that. Stupendous truth. Just to turn over in your mind that this is actually going to happen, and it's going to happen at the day of the Lord, according to these Scriptures that we are noticing here today. And so please go back with me now to Zephaniah, because as we've already noticed, the term the day of the Lord is employed to signify the judgment that came upon Judah in the Babylonian captivity, and also the final judgment that will take place at the Lord's second coming. So, that's how the book of Zephaniah opens up. Remember the two main features? One feature is it exposes the sin of people and then the consequent judgment. And the other feature that we noticed is that uh, it will give rise to this matter of the day of the Lord actually taking place and, and coming to pass. And so, that's the main theme of the book of Zephaniah, the theme, the day of the Lord. And it does have to do with what happened then to Judah in Zephaniah's day and what will happen in the future. So, keep that in mind. You see, if you go through the Old Testament where you find the day of the Lord used, that phrase, that, that term, you will discover it's often used with regard to temporal judgments that came at a certain point in history, whether on Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom, or other nations, as is the case here in Zephaniah. And then it also takes us to the very end. So, keep that in mind, because when you read about the day of the Lord, you might read a place where it's really to do with a past point in history, and you say, well, that's not the second coming of the Lord. And no, that's right. It isn't the second coming of the Lord, but it has been used there to signal the end of an era. Remember the meaning of it. Signals the end of an era. And therefore, you see that as you trace it through in Scripture, this phrase, the day of the Lord. And so, as we see it used in Zephaniah, it distinguishes two judgments. The judgment that came in those days when Zephaniah lived, or shortly after his day, and the judgment that will come at the very end of the history of this world. And so what I want to show you now in the closing part of this study today is that the kingdoms of men are smitten at the day of the Lord. The kingdoms of men are smitten at the day of the Lord. 
nations that either have or will come under judgment. That's what you find. They are smitten. They are destroyed. They're brought to an end. Their, their time ends. They pass away. It's all here. And so, let's look here just at the references. We're going to go through the book here now for the rest of this time and look at some references just to give you an idea of how this book lies. So, verse number 1, turn to, Ze- to Zephaniah 1, and verse number 1 sets the stage, uh, the background of Zephaniah, and when he prophesied and so on, that's the introduction. Then from uh, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, you really have a pronouncement of judgment there upon all of mankind, upon all of creation. Uh, that's how that reads. I'm not going to look at that now with you. But here's the first main section, from chapter 1, verse 4, to chapter 2, verse number 3. And that's one section that sets forth the judgment of Judah. The judgment of Judah. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. I will also stretch out mine hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and so forth. Now, note the names here. That must be clearly understood. Judah and Jerusalem here are to be understood literally. These, this is the nation of Judah in Zephaniah's day. This is the city of Jerusalem in Zephaniah's day. And the Lord says, I'm going to stretch my hand out upon them, which means I'm going to bring judgment on them. And so, Here is God pronouncing judgment upon Judah and Jerusalem for their sin. Let me just show you some of their sins. Again, go back there to verse number 4, and it says, uh, toward the end of the verse, I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place, and the name of the Camerine with the priests. What you have there, and on into verse 5, just let's read the first part of verse 5, and them that worship the host of heaven upon the housetops. What you have in verse 4 and verse 5a is outright apostasy from God that was being practiced in the nation of Judah and especially in the city of Jerusalem. There is apostasy, and God says for that reason Judah is going to be destroyed. I can't go that in any more detail. I only can point these things out. In verse 4, you have the Lord referring to Baal. That's Baal worship. The Cameroine, where a, a particular order of leaders in that whole apostasy. Verse 5 refers to those who worship the host of heaven upon the housetops. In other words, they set up their idols and their images right on the very tops of their houses. And there's a lot to that that we could look at today if I had time to do that, but I can't take the time. So here's apostasy. Then look at verse 5b. And notice this statement at the end of verse 5. It says, And them that worship and swear by the Lord and that swear by Malcolm. And so how do we understand this? Well, what you have here in this case, is what you call compromised worship. Do you notice what it says? It refers to those who swear by the Lord, that's Jehovah, but they also swear by Malcolm. And who's Malcolm? Well, he was a heathen god. And so what we find is that people in Judah were actually embracing a worship that was inclusive. Yes, they said they were worshiping Jehovah, the the God of Israel, the God of Judah from ancient times, but they were also swearing by that means they were swearing their allegiance. That's the sense of that swear. It's not taking the name of the Lord in vain or the the name of Malcolm in vain. It's actually signifying their allegiance. And so on one hand, they're saying, our allegiance is to Jehovah. But on the other hand, they're saying, our allegiance is also to Malcolm, this heathen god. Now, there's a compromise form of worship. So, there's apostasy and there's compromise. So, the sins of Judah are set out, but there's something more. Look with me, and you'll find that materialism had also gripped the hearts of the people of Judah. Look at verse number 11. How the inhabitants of Mactesh for all the merchant people are cut down, all they that bear silver are cut off. Remember, this is still with regard to Judah, 
And there's a reference here to a place called Mactesh. And it tells the people there to howl, to mourn. Why? Because all the merchant people are cut down. All that bear silver are cut off. Look at verse number 13. Therefore their goods shall become a booty, or others will come and plunder their, their, their goods. Their houses of desolation. They shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine thereof. And then verse 18, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. What do you find in these three verses? 11, 13, and 18, you find the sin of materialism. And so materialism had gripped the hearts of the people of Judah in those days. They were set on gaining their silver and their, and their wealth, as it says in verse 11. And verse 13, it talks about their goods and their houses and their vineyards. And then verse 18, it talks about their silver and their gold. And their whole focus, to a great degree, is on materialism. Now notice this. There's apostasy. That's one of their sins. Departing from God completely. There's also compromise, putting up a pretense that they're still worshiping God, but really worshiping as well this God called Malcolm. And going along with that, there's all this focus on materialistic gain. And the Lord says, I'm going to destroy it all. And so, you have that. Apostasy, compromise, materialism. Does it sound familiar? Is this not the way things are now to such a degree? Apostasy from God, departing from God, or on the other hand, putting up a form of religion that's a compromised religion, trying to please everybody, keep everybody happy. That's compromise. And that's wholesale on the market of religion today. And then materialism. Materialism is the god of the multitudes. They worship their silver and their gold. They worship their, 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 uh, their houses and their possessions. That's what they are devoted to, because that's what religion really is. It's being devoted to something. And so, here's materialism. But there's something else that really is remarkable here with regard to the sin of Judah. Go back to verse 12. And the Lord says this, It shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their lees, that say in their heart, and notice this, the Lord will not do good, neither will He do evil. Study that verse, think about that verse carefully. When it says here, when the Lord says here, I will search Jerusalem with candles, that's not to be taken literally. The Lord doesn't do that. He doesn't come to a people and light a candle and have a look. It's simply exposing or presenting the truth. You can't hide from God. Wherever you go to hide, He will search you out. He knows where you are. That's what that language means. But it talks in this verse about men that are settled on their lees. That, again, is a figurative term. Wine, whenever it's put into a casket, after a while, after it's fermented, it settles. And there are the lees, the, whatever you call, whatever another word would be for the stuff at the bottom of the barrel. It all settles down, and the wine is seated on top of it, and so forth. In other words, it, it signifies a settled position. And so verse 12 here is referring to people who think that God doesn't see them. God doesn't know them. All's well. They're settled. They're comfortable. They feel at ease. They're telling themselves, I've really made it. Life's a great thing, and I'm quite happy with all that I have. And then they say this in their heart, verse 12, the end of the verse. They say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will He do evil. What do you have there? You've got a theological position there. You know what it is? God is dead. God is dead. That's what they're saying. When it says, The Lord will not do good, neither will He do evil. They're actually comforting themselves with a lie. God doesn't know. 
God won't judge. We're quite content. We've made it in life. Everything's rosy because God is dead. My dear friend, that is so up to date. Why is it that society is the way it is today? Why is it that they, they actually can go through life and all they live for is whatever they may worship and devote, are devoted to, but especially the materialistic society in which we find ourselves, what is it that drives it? It's this. We're secure. God's dead. There is no such a person as God. We can do what we like, and nobody's going to intrude. There's, nobody's going to disturb us. We're, we're at ease. We're secure. That's the thinking of the world. And my friend, that is, the, that is the theology of God is dead. And you know, that comes from modernism. I showed you the other sins here in this passage, and I know we looked at them quickly, but they're there. Apostasy, compromise, materialism, and now to crown it all, the teaching, the belief that God is dead. He's out of the picture. We don't need to worry about that anymore. Oh, our forefathers, in their blindness, they believed in God, and they went to church, and they read their Bibles. Well, we don't need that anymore. We've really reached the peak, and we have made it, and we're content, and there's no God and therefore there's no judgment, and there's no heaven, there's no hell. You die and that's it. Do you see how the Bible's always up to date? So up to date. See, these are all traits, may I say. And what you have here said about Judah, all of these traits will also mark the last days, leading to the day of the Lord. And they're all around us already. And of course, they've always been in the world. But they're increasing and becoming stronger in their entrenchment in people's minds and in, in the teaching and in the agendas of men. Uh, these traits that I've pointed out to you here about Judah, when God destroyed Judah and took them away into captivity, they are very prevalent today, and we must come to terms with this. Look at verses 14 to 18 here, because what you have is now the Lord's response to all this. Zephaniah, from verse 4 right through to verse 13, has really described Judah's sins. Now, what do you find? What I said earlier, exposure is sin, then the pronouncement of judgment. So verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. Now remember something, brethren and sisters. Zephaniah, when he was given this word from God, would have preached it, as well as having written it. And so he went out there in the streets of Jerusalem, no doubt about this, throughout the land of Judah, and he would have been delivering the message that God had given him. He would have been pronouncing and denouncing their sins and telling them that the day of the Lord is near. You know how people will mock at the man out there, wherever it might be. We've all seen the, the, the illustrations and papers, and we've read about it, and we've even maybe seen it with our own eyes. The man out there with a sandwich board on, and he's got on one side, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh, and the other side, repent ye and believe the gospel. And people passing by think he's a nutcase. That's exactly what they have said about Zephaniah. Who does he think he is? He's preaching about sin. We're, 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 we've really made it. We're at a level now where we're so secure and have no worries, and here's he out there shouting and disturbing us. Get rid of that man. See, my friend, that's the way things are today, and that's what God does from verse 14 down to verse 18 he responds to all of this sin and departure from him and what men have to say about him. And what does he show in these verses? He shows from verse 14 to verse 18 that the day of the Lord cannot be averted, that the judgment that it will bring cannot be evaded. It is coming, and it will come without any thought of it being turned aside it will come and there will be no deliverance from it. You know, verse 18 is a remarkable verse. Just look at that verse with me. 
It says, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of His jealousy. He, will, he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land, the land of Judah. You know, the first part of that verse is striking. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. And of course, that could refer back to the references to their silver and their gold in earlier verses, and certainly that's true. You know, there's something else there. Do you, have you thought about what it is? Where does the Bible refer to silver and gold in the context of deliverance and the impossibility of being delivered by your silver and your gold? 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, For as much as ye know that ye are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from your vain conversation, that's your sin, but with the precious blood of Christ. And I haven't time to take you to other verses, but Ezekiel 7, 19 and Job 36, 18 and 19 are saying the very same thing. You see, the silver and the gold, that's what man depends on. Oh, I tell you, silver and gold can be a magnetic force in its own right around a man's soul. And he thinks when he has got plenty of it or some of it, this is it. I'm secure. But the Lord says their silver and their gold will not deliver them. And that's why God takes that language from the Old Testament and He brings it in in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, that we are not redeemed, we're not set free, we're not delivered from our sins by silver and gold. In other words, that won't pay back God. There are people who think that. Give plenty to the church or to religion, whatever they call it. And certainly we should tithe and give our offerings. That's, that's taught in the Bible. But when people start to think that giving their silver and gold to the work of God is going to save them, well, they have really gone off, haven't they, into darkness and error. But you know, the country's full of people like that. And we need to be careful with our own hearts because we're only giving to the Lord what is His and what He requires of us. It won't save us. But here you have the sin of Judah. Now, very quickly, for my time, of course, is gone. Chapter 2, 4 through to 7. So, the, 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 the passage dealing with Judah is from chapter 1, verse 4, to chapter 2, verse 3. Then chapter 4, uh, chapter 2 here, verses 4 to 7, deals, these verses deal with the Philistines. It says, Gaza shall be forsaken, Ashkelon a desolation. They shall drive out Ashdod, Akron shall be rooted up, and so on. Let me tell you something. Those names are all places in the lands or the land, the area where the Philistines lived. And so here now is a heathen nation, and God says He's going to judge that heathen nation for their sin. You see, He judges those who profess to be His people like those of Judah, but He will also judge the heathen. Clear, it's plain. My time is gone. I, I think I just will pause here and come back to this because there are things I wanted to say here about all of these uh, realms. So, chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, you've got the Philistines. Chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, you've got Moab and Ammon and their judgment at the day of the Lord. In chapter 2, verses 12 to 15, you've got the judgment of Ethiopia and Assyria at the day of the Lord. All these heathen nations are in view throughout the rest of chapter 2, and they're all judged. And there are some little details there that are very interesting that I don't, I don't have time to get into today, so we'll have to leave it. And then in chapter 3, he comes back to Judah. You see, the sins of God's people must get more attention. And that's what happens in chapter 3. He deals with God's people in chapter 1, as I've shown you, into chapter 2, Judah. But then he comes back to it in chapter 3. But that's for another time. 
and we'll have to just leave it there and look at that. But do you see how relevant the book of Zephaniah is, this book? That's a book that pronounces, uh, exposes sin and pronounces judgment. This book that takes into the realm, as no other book does, of the day of the Lord and what that actually means and how it's so significant, just not for those days when Zephaniah lived, but also for the end times. When the day of the Lord, in the uh, final analysis of things, will arrive and there will be no escape. And the judgment of God, the final judgment, is going to come upon the whole world, upon all of humanity, apart from those who are the Lord's. But we'll have to leave that to another time. Let us bow in prayer and let's just wait before the Lord. And Father, we come to Thee and we thank Thee for the relevance of this book of Zephaniah to our own day. We thank Thee for the freshness of Scripture, for the way in which it has a message for our generation. And Lord, we pray that Thy Word will be powerfully inscribed in our souls and that it will come to us with power and with freshness as we read and we study and we give our minds to these verses and we seek to understand them. O God and Father, move upon our hearts, we pray, and be with us as we seek to live for Thee in a day of apostasy, compromise, materialism, a day when the God-is-dead theology is everywhere, promoted by modernism, by liberal teaching, embraced by the multitudes of people. It suits them. It, it uh, fits their thinking. It makes them feel comfortable. No judgment, no wrath, no hell. Oh, Lord, that's what man loves to be told. Oh, God and Father, help us to warn people, as Zephaniah did. Help us to sound out the gospel trumpet. The day of the Lord is near. And, oh, Lord, we pray that men might be awakened and might be drawn to Thy dear and blessed Son. Be with us now and remember right through the rest of this day in this house. And may Thy name be glorified. We pray this for Christ's sake, remembering all others of like mind and like precious faith. Visit the church of God and give us all times of blessing and power. We ask this in the Savior's name. Amen.